we cannot solve the problem of suicide with silence. We have to talk about it. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, please call or text the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Help is available. Please ask. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring and talk about writing it. I'm Michelle Rado. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream nothing like that. Today's episode basically boils down to the power of words. Suicide is a powerful word. And as we'll hear from today's writer, Charlotte Maya, with her memoir, Sushi Tuesdays, she has become a fierce advocate of the power that words have to save us when we're in our darkest moments. But words also hold the threat of equally nefarious power. Throughout this podcast, I've danced around the details of my own childhood, but today's conversation requires a bit more explanation. So here it goes. I was raised with a belief system that taught me allowing thoughts of sickness or evil or anything bad at all into my mind was the gateway to illness manifesting in my body. Therefore, only good thoughts, healthy thoughts, proper thoughts were allowed. Because there's a whole bona fide religion constructed around this idea, in school I was exempted from medical exams and childhood vaccinations. But what took deeper root in me was being taken out of science class when we moved to chapters that dealt with human disease. Michelle, the biology teacher, would call me out. I'll give you a pass. You can go to the library. As if that in itself wasn't bad enough, because I was a shy person. I did have a little group of close friends, but Largely, I was unpopular and tried desperately not to be noticed. Of course, after something like this came all the questions. Why did you get out of science class? Well, I'm a Christian scientist. We're not allowed to study disease. Why? What's going to happen? If we learn about disease, then we're letting it into our thought, and so then we might get the disease. You think that you're going to get the disease? I don't know. I I couldn't answer any of these questions. I hated the questions. Then there were the other kids who would say things like, Lucky, I want to get out of going to class too. Ugh. I hated being shut out from learning something that everyone else was clearly going to now know about. Especially things about my own body. My imagination would run away with me. If a tiny bump showed up somewhere, I figured, oh, 
this must mean this thing's going to happen to me. And everyone else knows that. And I don't know. And so they would know what to do. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I won't get better and blah, blah, blah. Plus, there was that social scrutiny of my classmates discovering I was the oddball as a part of a weird religion no one knew about. Everyone else in my towny town in central Massachusetts was Catholic. Okay, maybe not everyone, maybe just 90%. <laughs> but I was the only Christian science kid in our town. So I learned that words and the thoughts they represented had deep power, the power to make us sick and unhappy, and that the answer to all of life's problems from a misplaced item in your house to the threat of a deadly disease could all be controlled with the power of our own thoughts, keep them pure and right and aligned with a supreme and loving omnipotent being. There's a lot that is quite lovely about such an idea, but it can also really confuse a child. Children are smart and have so many questions about our world. And the way that adults choose our words in answering our children's questions, that has lifelong implications. So this background of my own childhood is why I was absolutely riveted to the words and story of Charlotte Maya, and I have the utmost honor to share it with you today. As I was looking at our recording date on the calendar and stuff, and I was like, hey, we're talking on a Tuesday. <gasps> yes, we are. <laughs> so when you and I met rather serendipitously in a writing class, mm -hmm. and you were describing what you were writing about, and you mentioned writing about suicide and the death by suicide of your husband, Sam. Immediately, I recognized dealing with a very serious topic and, of course, so close and how devastating that is. And I thought, that's pretty big to be writing about such things. And I had a lot of thoughts about that. But maybe if you want to start off by your own introduction to your story and to your book, it's called Sushi Tuesdays. Maybe you want to even talk a little bit about why you named it that. Yeah, absolutely. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in this country overall. It's the second leading cause of death for the age demographic 25 to 34, which is absolutely horrifying, but we don't talk about it. And the one thing we know helps is talking about it. So there were certainly ways in which I felt that this was a story demanding to be told Sam, my first husband, died by suicide in 2007. At the time, my children were six and eight, so they were little. And when the police came to tell me about Sam's death, they said, we will tell the children that their father died, but you have to tell them how, and we recommend that you tell them the truth because you do not want them to find out from somebody else. And at a time when nothing made sense, that 
actually made sense to me. So that level of honesty and transparency have always guided my journey forward. It is one of the hardest things I've ever done to tell my little ones the truth about their father's death, but also they trust me for honest answers to life's hardest questions. And we cannot solve the problem of suicide with silence. We have to talk about it. So that is where sort of the writing journey began. Mm -hmm. The title Sushi Tuesdays comes from the fact that Tuesdays were really my day for self-care. On Tuesdays, I had my favorite yoga class and then a recurring slot opened on my therapist's schedule on Tuesdays. So Tuesdays became my day where I went to yoga, I went to therapy, and I really took care of myself. I started calling it my Charlotte Shabbat. And every now and again, I would take myself out to sushi. I didn't make plans to meet anyone else for lunch or coffee or anything, but I might mm -hmm. take myself out to sushi if I was in the mood for it. Right. And, you know, table for one. And that <sighs> became my Sushi Tuesdays was really sort of radical self-care for Charlotte. Right. What do I need today? Do I need to crawl back into bed and cry? Because that is real. Do I need to go for a hike or a walk? Do I just need to feel the rage or the sadness or the um, confusion? What do I need that will most promote my own well-being? Mm -hmm. As a single parent with two little kids, I knew if yeah. I didn't take care of myself, this was this was going to, this train was going to derail. Yeah, so it yeah. was really important to me. And my Tuesdays became, I, I looked forward to my Tuesdays more than my weekends, even because it was really just a day where I could take care of my own heart. Well, that's resonated with me so much for so many reasons. So I feel like I'm going to say that about 20 times before we're done with our conversation today. But that is so clear when I've, had the chance to talk with you in your writing and in your writing about what happened in the life part and the writing part is that it was a combination of what I'll call somehow an intuitive knowing on your behalf about this real clarity of what to tell your children, um, of how to move through this trauma as it was happening but also to listen and take the best guidance that was coming your way as it was happening. And so how to tell your children that their dad wasn't coming home and to use the word suicide um, and explain that to them in terms they understood. I, I don't have words for that right now, but... Um, that in addition to the police advising you to say that. And you're having a day where, again, serendipity, another theme here, I think it's like, okay, you had the yoga, you had your therapy, and you had the recognition that I need to also have a day for me. And I love it even when you make the comparison of the weekends, because it just shows that the whole world around us might be working on some kind of schedule and 
you know, big mechanism that's rolling forward, but that doesn't mean that where we are in dealing with something is kind of fitting in with that. And to not only accept that and sort of own it as your own, you act on it and you you did what you needed to do. So I thought what I would do is read a little bit from your book to you if you don't mind, um, to kind of get us underway. And again, this is from very early in the book. So people can kind of understand this is some of the starting moments. So this is the day after you had learned about Sam's suicide. It was amazing to me how people I didn't know well or at all stepped up to help. Some had a unique skill or special access. Others had shared experiences, useful perspectives, or simply a broken heart. Everyone possessed their own quality of light that they shined in my world. These lovely people made cameo appearances and long-term commitments to the well-being of my sons and me in ways I could never have imagined. I am profoundly grateful. I won't name each individually, not because they aren't desperately dear to me, but Because there were so many, in the interest of clarity, therefore, I will call them collectively the Janes. So I love this. There's sort of this little Greek chorus of characters that show up. So that'll become relevant. And then the next part that I did want to read in setting us up was an email that you sent early in the morning after you did not sleep. Again, that this was the day after... Sam's suicide. Subject, please call me. Hi, Ben and Linda. Please call me. Charlotte. When the phone rang shortly thereafter, it was Linda. Is everything okay? Of course, she suspected that it wasn't. There would be no easy way to say what had to be said. I took a deep breath. Sam died yesterday. What? What happened? I did not employ the euphemism, passed away. Such expressions attempted to soften the blow of death, but they confused the children, as though their father had absentmindedly toddled off someplace. I told Linda that Sam had killed himself. She was dumbfounded. I told the truth. Suicide. It was so hard to say the word out loud, that I paused and took a slight breath before uttering it. Sam died by suicide. He jumped from the top of a parking structure across the street from his office. I don't know why. I took the boys on a hike, and when I got home, there were two policemen and a priest in my driveway. I hope you don't mind me reading your your words back to you, but I wanted to read that both for listener to get acquainted and also to talk about this thing that most struck me about your book, which is this absolute clarity, the writing and the intention was so clear. And there is a spaciousness for every emotion that is so, um, I'll say counterintuitive to, I think in a horrible moment in a devastating moment to want to, I mean, we don't know 
what's going on and you don't know what's going on and we're right there with you. So that's not a question, but maybe <laughs> you want to. Well, I, I will speak to that. I was terrified that I would be ostracized because of how Sam died. I just was really afraid that I would be alienated from my community. But what I found was the exact opposite. And what I found was that people wanted to share, they wanted to hear, and they held me. Mm -hmm. And as I continued to talk to friends and people really just honestly about what had happened, what I knew, what I didn't know. I heard people say over and over again, Charlotte, you have to write the book. Mm. That and early on, really? That early on. even Maybe not like that day. Right, right, um, right. But, but within the first several months, because, mm -hmm. because it is such a taboo topic and we don't talk about it, but it impacts so many of us. I think it's something yes. like once every 11 minutes, mm -hmm. someone dies in this country alone yeah. from suicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you and I talk for an hour, that's five people who are loved and have families and people who care. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we don't talk about it it just doesn't help. The silence isn't helping. It doesn't help the people who are suffering from depression or um, whatever other illnesses. I do believe that suicide is an illness. It is not a crime. It is an illness. And so yes. that helps to understand suicide in that way. When we understand that suicide is a disease, just like cancer or diabetes or an undiagnosed heart condition and somebody dies suddenly from a heart attack, it takes that judgment out of it when we understand that suicide is a disease, just like other diseases. And that does give some breathing room mm -hmm. around suicide to have a conversation about it. And those conversations make a difference, both for the people who are suffering and for those of us who are left behind when someone does die in this way. Because the the stigma extends not just to the person who died, but for those of us who survived that person's death. And right. the shame and the stigma threaten to reduce our loved one's life to those last moments. And that's not fair. It's not true. It's not the whole of who they are. Absolutely. So those are some of the reasons why I just feel so compellingly and compassionately to have these conversations. Yeah, I um, I couldn't agree more about how important it is. And the reason that your words had resonated with me even early in that class is I immediately responded to you and said, this happened to someone I know. And so I so appreciate the lens of seeing suicide as an illness because as you also write, it's... um. It's a silent illness, and people are suffering as yes. much as they are in any other disease where people suffer. And so often it's the surprise that comes from that. We had no idea. And this desperate grapple 
to turn it around in our heads again and again and again. And what happened and what could I have done and how does this make sense? And um, I will just share, it was my uncle um, who died by suicide. And I was only, I was in college at the time. And honestly, we, we were not all that close. And I was trying to remember the last time I had seen him. And it was my mom's brother. And so I only had this interpretation of my mom lost her brother, as opposed to I lost my uncle. It was a, a weird thing. I mean, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to say other than there are so many ripples yes. that go out from each life that are ways that it becomes so difficult to say what was someone going through and how could I not have known something to try and help. One very strange, uh, I don't know, it's strange, it's probably not strange at all. I had dreams for years afterward that I would bump into him somewhere, that I would be in some foreign country, or I would be doing something and he was there and he was disguised, or he was, and I, and it was like he had run away. And it, that was suddenly I said, oh, so you are still around. Mm. It was, it, it was just, um, it was one of the ripples of lives go on, love goes on. Um, your words, I'm going to just keep kind of saying them back to you because they're so astute and so compassionate. And and the other thing that you had said in our class to me that resonated very much when you had read something, we were giving some feedback. And I think that you had used a rather uh, I'll say violent verb and something. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Is that really the word you want to use? And you said, we can survive words. Mm. And I love that. We can survive words. And to your point, even earlier, not only can we survive them, they can often rescue and save. Yes. Because if we do have the courage to, to speak. Yeah, the isolation is devastating. When about a year after Sam died, one of his cousins also died. Uh, She was 33, and she had died from uh, breast cancer. And another cousin said Carol was fighting for her life, and Sam just threw his away. And it made me so angry because... Carol had doctors and chemo and therapists and neighbors showing up with casseroles and friends driving carpool and babysitting the baby. And Sam was fighting just as hard, but he was fighting alone. Exactly. And we might not be able to get rid of the disease of depression, but we can address the isolation. We do not have to suffer alone. David Brooks wrote a beautiful op-ed in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about a friend of his who started suffering from mental illness and had the wherewithal to ask for help. And so Mm -hmm. the friend had asked his own wife and David for help. And 
when later the friend did die in the op-ed, David Brooks says, I had a lot of feelings after my friend died, but I didn't feel regret because I had been able to show up for my friend. I knew that he was suffering and I did show up. Mm. And that to me was so incredibly powerful. If we let each other into our world, um, we we don't have to suffer alone. And it doesn't mean that death is is definite, but I mean, we're all going out sometime. I was going to say, it is. I guess death <laughs> is definite. It just, <laughs> but in the suffering from depression that David really felt like he could be with his friend in that space, oh, that is such a good friend. And mm-hmm. and if we each have one of those friends, then we are going to be okay, even when the bad stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I had been involved with other suicide prevention organizations afterward. And one of the other statistics I recall hearing was that often when we are depressed or suffering and in that very dark space, what is difficult to see is that you feel this feeling will never end. And of course, that feeling can and will end that does not have to end with taking your own life. And when reaching out to someone or talking to someone like a suicide prevention hotline or any person who is going to be most receptive in some way, it's a 15 or 20 minute time span that we are in that very dark and desperate place. And to bridge that amount of time with someone, yes, again, is huge. I draw a great deal of hope from that new 988 uh, National Lifeline. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say that out loud a couple of times, 988, um, yes. just like 911, and you can call it or text it 24-7, the National Lifeline. Just the fact of having that lifeline, I think, does a couple things. First of all, it's a resource, of course. But the fact that we have a national lifeline, that alone reminds us that there are enough people who need it, yeah. that we have that now as a resource for ourselves, for each other. And I do draw a great deal of hope from that because it is raising awareness and consciousness. Even if you don't think you need it, knowing that it's there makes a difference. Absolutely. And that's, again, it's a talking solution, right? It's talking, texting, right. engaging with another human. And in that verbal or words-based way, that does make a difference. Clear words can save us. Yes. Yes. I want to keep talking to you, but I want to move on to your reading. Okay. So in setting up some of the people that we're going to hear. You you do describe who some of them are as we go. Mm-hmm. We do know that Sam is your husband. Danny and Jason are your two sons. Zach is Sam's cousin slash brother. So cousins, but they were like brothers. Yes. And then we heard about the Janes. So we're going to hear more about them. And then the other thing I have a note about. So explain the surprise move, capital S, surprise move. Mm. 
there were things in retrospect that I could look back on after Sam's death and think differently about. I knew that he was stressed about work. I knew that he had back pain, but I didn't think that those things made him suicidal. And one of the things Sam was worried about was our financial situation. And at the time, I was home full time with the kids. And when Sam expressed to me that he was worried about our finances, one of the things he said is, I've already solved everything. We can move to Surprise, Arizona. And I was not about to move to Surprise, Arizona. And can you also just say where you do live and did live at the time? Yes. I live in Los Angeles. We lived in Los Angeles. And I am absolutely melt in the heat. So Los Angeles might sound like a strange place to live, except for that it is cold every night, even in the summer, it cools down at night. And I've, I had I had grown up here. I graduated from high school locally, and, and we had very, very deep roots. Sam did as well. And so in retrospect, I could look back at that and, and wonder about it a little bit more. But at the time, I said, well, I'm not really ready to move yet. Well, let's try this. I will dust off my JD and go back to practicing law in one of the ironies that is my life. I did all trust and estate work, so probates and dealing with the after-death legal consequences. Wow. So that's what I did. So I went back. I started back at work part-time and said, you know, let's try this first. So I thought that I had solved that part of the problem. You know, right. I was good at solving problems. And... I thought I had done that. Okay. So we're going to hear this one chapter. And if you want to start it whenever yes, you're ready, um, you can maybe start with just the title of the chapter. I will. Okay. Chapter five, the most expensive real estate in Los Angeles. On Tuesday, I started counting the time since Sam's death in days instead of hours. I also chose a burial plot for my husband. Neither of these seemed possible. When I have breathed my last, I don't care whether my remains are buried or cremated. Give whatever parts or pieces to someone who can use them and then dispose of the rest with my blessing. But Sam didn't want to be cremated. He wanted to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Thus began the first family disagreement. His family wanted him to be buried at a cemetery near Los Angeles International Airport, where his grandfather, an uncle, and a cousin were buried. That was too far away. People on their first visit to Los Angeles are surprised by how vast the city is. The view at night of the sprawling city lights from a plane descending into LAX is spectacular, but the miles on the ground can be prohibitive. I wanted Sam closer to me and our boys. In our estate planning documents, Sam had granted me full discretion to do what I wanted with his remains. I decided to bury him in a Jewish cemetery on Forest Lawn Drive, about 10 miles from my house. Zach picked me up for the appointment. It would be weeks before I drove myself. I felt safe confiding in Zach. I knew he understood. His heart had been torn apart, too. We drew comfort from each other's presence, the wife and the brother-cousin being the next closest thing to Sam. We, too, loved him fiercely, protectively, and the two of us felt deeply betrayed by his suicide. 
When the funeral director ushered us into a private room, we found that Sam's cousin Jose had just arrived straight from Miami. Jose has big brown eyes like Sam's, rimmed with pain that day, but stoic and intense. I trusted that he cared about Sam and me and the boys, even though I disagreed with his judgment on the surprise move. Anyway, I didn't blame Jose for that. I blamed Sam. I took a seat at the table, and another cousin arrived with her husband. Moments later, Sam's sister Miranda and her husband showed up. I wasn't sure why all of them felt the need to attend the meeting, but I wasn't opposed to the support. The funeral director looked at the form in front of him and then addressed me. I have a few questions. Place of birth? Los Angeles, California. Place of death? Pasadena, California. Sam hadn't traveled far, never even had a passport. He continued down the form. I was grateful that he didn't ask the cause of death. I thought I remembered that suicides weren't permitted to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Date of funeral? I hesitated. Tradition required a burial within 24 to 48 hours, but the county coroner hadn't yet released Sam's body. There was no doubt over the cause of death, but for some infuriating reason, they had to conduct an autopsy. I heard laughter from across the room and looked up. Sam's sister was trying to find their grandmother in the cemetery directory, but Abuela had been widowed and remarried so many times that Miranda couldn't remember her latest last name. It might have struck me as funny, too, if I hadn't just been widowed myself. Instead, her laughter grated on me. I didn't think about how Miranda might have felt, having been blindsided by the suicide of her younger brother, her only sibling. I didn't note whether her laughter seemed nervous. It struck me that even in the presence of all these people who loved Sam and who loved me, nobody got it. Everyone there, including the funeral director, had a spouse, a living spouse. I had a dead one. Open casket or closed? Jose perked up and interrupted. Closed, of course. It irritated me that he answered my question. Was he afraid that I might give the wrong answer? The funeral director looked to me for confirmation and I nodded. Then he continued, as casually as if he were taking the order for espresso shots in my morning latte. Single plot or double? The question hit me like a sucker punch. Sam wanted a plot. I did not. Not then, not ever, but especially not then. I didn't want to live the rest of my life thinking of that place as my ultimate destination. I didn't want to be that grieving widow who lived her lonely life longing to be reunited with her late husband. I didn't want to see a half-completed plaque with empty space reserved for my date of death whenever I visited Sam at the cemetery, and I really didn't want my sons to be haunted by that image. I knew instinctively that my mourning process wouldn't end where it began. I did not get to choose Sam's death. I was left to choose my life. Single. Let me see what's available, he excused himself. I stared out the window. Zack put his hand on mine. It felt like he was my only ally. The funeral director came back with completed paperwork and three potential sites for Sam's body. Zack, Jose, and my brother-in-law reviewed the papers briefly and then slid them across the table for my signature. He pointed to the bottom of the page. Sign here. Too many years of practicing law, I guess, but I scanned the form before signing. 
My brain was mushy, but one stark detail remained clear. My husband died on Saturday, October 20th, 2007. The form in front of me, however, showed the date of death as October 19th. Seriously? An attorney, a stockbroker, an accountant reviewed this form and none of them noticed? My eyes were so swollen I had stopped wearing contact lenses, but I saw the error. I pushed the paperwork away from me. The date is wrong. I felt edgy. I suspected these in-laws were not here to support me, but to make sure the shiksa honored Sam appropriately. It bugged me that they thought they knew Sam better than I did. If I couldn't trust the date on the form to be accurate, what else might be wrong? So much paperwork, so many details. I had to get a grip. I could only rely on myself. In a room full of grieving family who desperately loved Sam, I felt profoundly alone, the sole solitary Gentile. Zach noticed that I'd withdrawn, and he came to my side without a word. He accompanied me in the funeral director's van to look at the first plot. It was the least expensive option on a steeply sloping hillside near the busy street. It reeked of exhaust and horseshit. This is nice, someone said. It was nothing remotely resembling nice. Sam didn't deserve this, I thought. I looked at Zach. Sam would never have done this to me. I turned and walked back to the van. Zach looked at the funeral director and shook his head. He turned to the cousins. Not this one. I can't remember what I hated about the second plot other than the fact of it. The third plot was higher up on the hillside, enough removed that I could no longer hear the cars racing below with a view of the San Fernando Valley where Sam had spent most of his life. It was a newer section of the cemetery, the landscaping young and accessible by a cement path. I thought of Sam's parents visiting their son here. His mother could access this spot without fear of falling herself. I pictured the boys scrambling up the grassy knoll to visit. It was a place they could be proud of. It would be Sam's final earthly resting place, beautiful as these things go, but it would not be mine. That little ground space in the Hollywood Hills was exorbitantly expensive, almost $800 per square foot, as they say in the parlance. I would never purchase such overpriced real estate again. The upside was that it was entirely my decision. The downside, it was my bill to pay. I didn't care. I handed the funeral director my credit card and hoped that Visa hadn't caught wind of Sam's death. A Jane wrote Sam's obituary for the local newspapers. Sam Maya died suddenly. He was 41. The word suddenly served, as it commonly does, as a euphemism, replacing one S-word with another. It was hard enough to say suicide within my circle, and I objected to its use in a published format. It felt important to protect Sam's memory. Jane formulated the broad strokes. I filled in the biographical details, graduation dates, the suggestion for In Lieu of Flowers. She also set up a caringbridge.org website where she posted funeral information. There were so many details to coordinate, and most of them couldn't be finalized until I had a date certain for the funeral. 
District Attorney Jane had requested an expedited release from the coroner's office, but for the time being, we were in limbo. The boys managed another entire day at school, and Danny even went to a friend's house afterward. By the time we sat down to dinner, I was looking forward to something that felt normal, even though I wasn't hungry and my father occupied Sam's chair. Let's play best and worst, I suggested, looking around the table at Danny, Jason, my parents, my sister, and my brother-in-law. Sam and I often started our family dinner conversations with a round of best and worst. Each of us shared the best thing that had happened that day and the worst. We wanted to encourage the kids to think about what they were happy about, but also develop the confidence to talk about their struggles in a safe place. I had been raised at a table that only allowed sunshine and roses. I wanted my children to feel comfortable bringing their whole thorny selves to the conversation. Happiness is not a zero-sum game. Life includes the range from joy to devastation, and there was room for all of it at our table. Danny started. My best was my play date with Kevin, he said, smiling. Kevin, who, after his older brother died, used to pretend to play board games with him. Kevin would take turns, first moving his own piece and then switching to the other side of the table and moving his brother's pieces for him. By the age of eight, Kevin was already a more comfortable companion through grief than many adults and the ideal friend for Danny to hang out with that afternoon. Danny continued, And my worst was that Daddy died. All the gratitude in the world would not negate this fact. Yes, I encouraged him for naming the worst thing. That might be your worst for a long time. Next was my father's turn. He looked like a cross between an absent-minded professor and Santa Claus, slightly disheveled, snow-white hair and beard, his smiling cheeks blushed pink. My best was meeting so many of Charlotte's friends. My dad is gifted at finding the best in every situation. And my worst... His voice caught. I knew he would struggle with the worst part of the conversation. The man practically had rose-colored corneas. My worst, he began again, and his eyes welled up with tears. He could not speak the worst. My father had a PhD in nuclear physics, but he was chronically incapable of acknowledging negative emotions. As a child, I sometimes felt invisible, he lavished his attention when I was happy or successful and all but ignored me when I was angry. When I was emotional, I was told to go to my room. Come out when you feel better, my father would say. I was terrified of being abandoned for revealing the intensity of my feelings. For years, I had tried to stuff them. No doubt the best and worst conversations with my kids were in direct response to this piece of my upbringing. It had been profoundly healing when I learned to acknowledge the hurt. I waited for my father's response, daring him to say his worst out loud. He didn't. He could not tolerate the pain. He took a breath, his voice hitched on what was too horrifying to say, and then he blurted, But they were tears of joy. Tears of joy? You've got to be kidding me. The doorbell rang right at that moment, probably saving my father's life. I left the table to answer the door. On my front porch stood two people, Steve, a friend and financial advisor, holding account transfer forms for my signature, 
and Jane M.D. with Xanax in hand. By the time I returned, the dining table had been cleared, best and worst had been abandoned, and my dad was sitting on the sofa chatting with my sister. I was still seething. Tears of joy, I said incredulously. My dad stopped talking and turned to look at me. I stared down at him. Are you insane? I yelled. Dad, those are not tears of joy. Those are tears of pain. We are not joyful. We are suffering. I am a widow and my little boys have lost their father. My physicist father looked like he was trying to meld into the sofa. Honestly, tears of joy? Fuck you. How insensitive it felt that my own father conflated tears over Sam's suicide with joy of any kind. How wildly inaccurate it seemed to confuse the shock and sadness over Sam's death with anything remotely related to joy. Fueled by exhaustion and rage, I continued my tirade. Tears of joy are for births and graduations and weddings. Tears of joy are about love or relief or pride. Nobody is happy about Sam's suicide, Dad. And I am telling you to go fuck yourself because I know you are going to love me anyway. And then I stormed out of the room. I had never told my dad to fuck himself, not even as a teenager. I had been biting my tongue, mostly, my whole life, hiding the intensity of my feelings from my father who couldn't abide them, but I refused to soft-pedal how much pain we were in, even if it reduced my dad to tears. Maybe tears would be good for him. People survive tears. One of the reasons I married Sam was that I could share the full range of my feelings with him. Mr. Rogers was the first one to tell me that my feelings were okay, but Sam Maya was the first one to allow me to experience my feelings bodily without banishing me from the room. When we argued, Sam would hold my hand gently but firmly. It infuriated me. I was terrified that he would leave me, the unspoken word divorce rising like a specter and creating a conscious dread. I felt my body might implode in the confusion of holding both emotions, anger and tenderness, at the same time. But Sam remained sturdy in this space. He was confident enough to let me rage, tears of frustration spilling down my face. I didn't wipe them off because I didn't want to let go of his hand. Sweetheart, we are on the same team, he would say. I retreated to my bedroom, sadness washing over me. I held my own hand and imagined the warmth of Sam's. A voicemail blinked for my attention. I have some good news for you. The voice belonged to D.A. Jane. I talked to the county coroner. You will have Sam back by Thursday. My whole body exhaled. On a day full of worsts, this might have been my best. I took the Xanax that Jane M.D. brought over and slept for the first time since Sam's death. I woke up at 2 a.m., but still, it was progress. I can't thank you enough um, for reading that and for writing that. And before I talk a little bit more about it, I was thinking about a ritual that you discuss, that you did every day, maybe you still do. I do. You fill up a bowl of water. Can you just talk about that a little bit? I had read about this practice in a book by Rachel Naomi Remen, 
called My Grandfather's Blessings. And she had learned it from a group of Tibetan nuns. And the way I apply it is I have this bowl. It's a, it takes sort of two hands to hold it. And every morning I fill it with water. And as I fill the bowl, I think about all the parts of my life, the things I'm grateful for, what I'm excited about, the things I'm happy about, looking forward to, and also what pains or aches or fears there might be. And as the bowl fills, I just hold all of it. And as Dr. Remen describes this practice, she puts hers on an altar of sorts during the day where she'll see it. I put mine next to the kitchen sink uh, with kids and cats and dogs. It just seemed more realistic and safer. But as I pass the bowl in the course of my day, which is often by mm -hmm. the kitchen sink, it just reminds me to take in all of my life and to use all of it in service. The beautiful, happy parts and also the glitchy, painful, scary parts, because that's all part of life and all of it can be used in the service of life and in the service of each other. And then at the end of the day, the last thing I do before going to bed is I tip the water down the drain and empty it with a sense of gratitude and also letting go. Mm. And there's a real sense of now is the time to rest, that my day has been full and now the day has ended and it is time to rest. And then I put it upside down on the counter. And when the kids were little, they called that part dumping mommy's worries down the drain, which <laughs> is one of my favorite things that they've ever said. Very true. And so we dump mommy's worries down the drain. Now those kids are 22 and 24 and they don't say that anymore. Uh -huh. But I, I let it all go and then it is time to rest. And that is something that I do still do every single day. Did you begin that after Sam's death or did you do that before? I did it before, actually, wow. and it has continued to be a lifeline, obviously. And something really interesting, when I first started doing it, we only had one child at the time, mm -hmm. so that's how long ago it was, 24 years ago. And something really interesting happened when I started doing it. I had suffered from recurring nightmares as mm -hmm. a child, and every now and again, I would still have that same recurring nightmare as a young adult. And when I started doing this practice with the meditation bowl, the nightmares disappeared. Wow. And one night early in the process of starting this practice, one night, maybe, I don't know, three or four months into practicing this, I woke up with the nightmare and realized that I had forgotten to empty my bowl at the end of the day. And what was really strange is that Sam and Danny also, all three of us woke up when I had that nightmare and I rushed into the kitchen and I dumped the bowl. <laughs> wow. And that was the last nightmare I have had. Wow. I know. It was, it's been a very, very powerful and healing practice for me to just take it all in, all of it. It's yes. all part of how we got here. And then to let it go. And that 
it, there's a tenderness about it. There, and mm. again, it's sort of that theme of self-care. There's a tenderness of letting myself rest, put down all the baggage. We've got a lot we're carrying every day yeah. and yeah. it's okay to put it down and it's necessary yeah. to put it down. Yeah. Well, when I read this and the aspect of your childhood, um, it was beyond a serendipitous <laughs> discovery um, because what you don't name in this chapter, per se, is growing up as a Christian scientist, as did I. And uh, I don't know about you, but my practice in discovering people who had childhoods this way are few and far between. And so I very much recognized um the the rose-colored corneas <laughs> might be the best description ever um uh inability to tolerate anything negative um that can be so detrimental and is very painful um i don't know so what i love was your I don't know, proactive is a goofy word, but you know, you were very attentive, self-attentive to what made sense, what didn't make sense to you as a child and what did make sense to you as an adult and developing your own practices as you did with the bowl of water and with the best and the worst. Um, and this scene with your dad, when I read it out loud, I, <laughs> I was bawling because um, I so recognized the deep desire to say, fuck you. And I can say, fuck you, because I know you're still going to love me. Yeah. Uh, my mom is a extremely devout Christian scientist. It is no secret between she and I that uh, we have differed on this very much as I grew up and grew out of the religion. Um, but for me, it's been very, uh, it's been binary for a long time. And uh, mm. so I have spent a long time trying to wring a whole bunch of shit out of me. <laughs> And um, when I read your book, I have been trying to retain something valuable and retain what is meaningful and useful and uh, just not be so binary about it. Yes. Um, and so in my um, very goofy way I say to you how did you do it <laughs> because clearly I, I feel like you did not reject your religious upbringing you didn't hold on to a lot of parts of it either you were right there ready to take the Xanax like you <laughs> you talk about um <laughs> other times even before much earlier than this you discuss Christian science in the context of your marriage to Sam before you get married and, and the role that played and a tubal pregnancy that you went to mm -hmm. the ER for. Uh, yeah. How did that all happen? 
small question. Yes, this is a big question. Um, <laughs> I'll go straight for the big stuff. Yeah. Pick, pick any slice of that that you feel right. So my parents were always very loving and kind and did, as I'm, as I imagine what most parents do, what they honestly, genuinely believe is the best for our children and their health and well-being. Yep. And there are, like you say, I, I have hold on a lot to some of the things that have served me and I have let go of some of the things that have not served me. And one of the things my parents did especially well, in my opinion, was that they encouraged my sister and me to think for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then I did. And so they were also very supportive of that. So I was, I was very, um, maybe not initially were they supportive. It's always hard when our kids grow up and they make different choices, but that's also the gift. Yeah. Right. We, we raise them as best we can and love them as best we can. And then they get to decide and we get to decide. And that is the gift. And one of the things I often said to my kids and still do, if truth is true, it will stand up to the questions. And so we don't have to be afraid to ask the questions because one mm. of two things is going to happen. If truth is true and we ask the questions, we will find out that it's true. And that is good news. And if truth is not true, if we if truth is true and we ask a question and the question turns out that maybe the truth is not quite so true as we thought, then that is also good information to have. And that is something that we can let go. So I feel like that those were some of the things that that kind of helped me develop a confidence. For me, it was sort of a combination of confidence and humility to trust myself, but also be humble enough to be open to the things I might not know mm -hmm. yet. And I think life teaches us a lot of what we need to learn. Mm -hmm. Kind of like children, you know, they come as they come. And then the children themselves teach us what we need to know mm. about them. Mm -hmm. And they all come differently. They're all unique. Right. I would say, you know, if, the, if your first child doesn't humble you, your second one will bring you to your knees. Because life is humbling in that way. And yeah. every child is, I don't care if they're identical twins. They're, right. Every child is unique. Yeah. And that is, it's the gift of a lifetime to learn to befriend each other because we are all unique. So I think some of those things were sort of ingrained in me at a very young age. Yeah. And, yeah. and I drew a lot of confidence from that. And my parents were really good at, they might let me know if I was making a decision that they disagreed with. Um, you know, those often come in the late teens and early 20s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe continue now, but they, they were very clear on, even if they didn't think that the decision I was making was in the best interest of my own health and well-being, they also were very clear about the fact that they loved me and they supported my right. making of that decision. And I think this is an important thing as a parent and as a child, because it leaves the space for us to come back to each other. Yes. And, and it, I had the space where I could say, you know what, I kind of screwed that up mm -hmm. and I am sorry and I would like to do better and we need space for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that what comes across, again, very beautifully in more of what you write is the way that you see each child absolutely as who he is and how their ways of grief and experiencing loss were so different. Your 
protectiveness of the space for each one of their experiences was just (laughs) wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So heartening, very heartening. Um, Bringing it back to the words yet again, you were said to them, if you feel very angry and you want to use words that not everybody always likes when you're at home and you're angry, you can use them. There there are some very powerful, very powerful <laughs> scenes. And yeah. Sometimes we use Uncle Jose's colorful words and <laughs> they serve a purpose. Yeah. There there is a reason why we have curses because they help us get to a place that hopefully we don't spend the rest of our time in. But there are times that we need to yeah express it and be clear about what we're feeling and knowing it's the time to do it. Ugh, I stuffed stuff yeah. down for so long. It's still coming out. It Well, healing is ongoing, isn't it? it? Healing is a lifelong journey. We're not fixed after a year or even after, you know, getting remarried. And there's no expiration date on grief. There's no date certain on which, oh, okay, we're done. We're fixed. We're healed. Yeah. Goodbye, grief. Right. Um, we joke in our house, we don't hide the skeletons in the closets around here. We put them right out on the piano and up on the walls because, like you said earlier, love remembers. Mm-hmm. The love yes. isn't, the love doesn't end. And so the grief doesn't end. It gets much lighter. It's not so heavy. Right. But there are those moments still when it takes my breath away. The yeah. six year old is set to graduate from college in May. Wow. And it seems impossible that Sam isn't here to watch him. Right, right. I'm part of a online meditation mindfulness community. Um, And so many of the things that have to do with both writing and meditation to me resonate with each other as well as with life. It's yes. it's just analogous for that. And um, one woman was sharing about how it had, was the first anniversary. You call it death anniversary, which I I just love the way that you give honor and unique recognition to to each one of the things that your family specifically has gone through. She was saying how it was the first anniversary, and the grief right now was not the ripping apart grief that it was when she lost her loved one, whoever it was. And she used the term, it's more of a mature grief. And I liked that. I hadn't actually heard anyone describe grief that way, but in how you describe the grief, like the love is a living thing that continues. And, um, I feel like when we're having a happy moment and when everything is going our way, we feel as if it should always continue on exactly like this. And so one side of the coin, the one that I'm good at seeing without any rose-colored anything that I feel like I have to bring to the world sometimes is like, it's not always going to be good. (laughs) But yeah, sometimes it sucks. But the other side of the coin is when it does suck and when we are going through deep crisis, it is it is not always going to be that way. That is 
not permanent. Right. So it is not permanent. Yeah. And that is, I, I agree. Meditation is a profoundly helpful practice for me with mm-hmm. grief. Yeah. And the mature grief, I love hearing that too. Sometimes I picture grief and especially grief with, with trauma, like a brand new baby. First, we count that grief's age in minutes and hours and days and eventually weeks and months and years. Right. And so it does make sense that mature grief. I'm going to hold on to that as yeah. well. Yeah. And that's, again, in returning to the, the written pages that you have put out into the world, seeing that change, again, I was right there with you in measuring first minutes and then hours and then days and how that clock does not ever go away. It's with us and we measure in a different way. And we also continue to find joy and love and passion and move forward to embrace the life that is ours to live. Right. And I I do have shades of my upbringing still in that I somehow feel that I am an optimistic person at heart. Yes. In spite of, I don't know if that's my temperament or my upbringing, but it's at least my upbringing. You also remained absolutely present every moment maybe not every moment, but through many moments to what what could be too and not necessarily also demonstrated beautifully. Again, your clarity that you were, you just absolutely knew this is not a double plot is not right for me for yeah, no. this. That inner knowing, how much of that was, I mean, it comes across so clearly in the writing and I am guessing in the the living, you were just continually moving in and out of knowing and confusion. And there's a very deep discovery to try and understand the why. And mm-hmm. that we live with you through the book as well as you try and discover that. But the the doing and the writing, how were they intertwined? And has there been anything unexpectedly difficult in now having this book out in the world? Oh, wow. Thank you for asking this question. Sometimes people will say, oh, writing the book must have been really therapeutic or cathartic. And I had a therapist that was therapeutic and cathartic. The writing was really a matter of learning the craft of writing. And that was its own challenge. I started a blog about four years after Sam's death. I started off with the title Sushi Tuesdays even then. And since, you know, we've already let those cats out of the bag, um, as a URL, there's shit right in the middle of Sushi Tuesdays. And I didn't see it right away. But then as soon as I saw it, I thought, well, it's sort of poetic because Sushi Tuesdays is about dealing with the real shit. And sometimes it stinks. So I wrote the blog for several years with an eye toward wanting to write the book. But at the end of four years, I had, you know, a lot of great blog posts, but it didn't tell a cohesive story. And so I needed to learn how to do that. And I had heard a podcast where someone said, just because you've read dozens of books or hundreds of books or thousands of books doesn't mean you know how to write a book. And that's why you need a book coach. And I thought, that's what I need because I have read dozens and hundreds and thousands of books, but this blog (laughs) situation isn't, it's a little unwieldy. So that was a matter of 
learning the craft to tell a story with a beginning, a middle, an end, yeah, and yeah. to learn to do that. I mean, I'd always been writing. I was an English major and a lawyer. Yeah, so you you had written before right. this all happened. You were a writer in some capacity, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't ever expect that the the first book I would write would be Sam's suicide. Of course not. And so there, there was some overlap in living the journey and then writing the journey. But I do consider those two separate journeys. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can see how they would be. Did you have a lot of trouble with memory bringing it back when you did decide to do beginning, middle, and end? This is such a great question. Because memory is very slippery, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And what I might remember might be different than what other people remember. And I am not a fabulous journaler. I did write a lot of emails. So I actually went back to 2007 and found emails. I went back to, I sometimes will write cryptic notes in my calendars over the years. And so I went back and looked mm, at that. Right, right. I would look at photographs. Sometimes photographs yeah. would remind me of things. Sometimes I would actually call a friend and say, do you remember? Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. So those were all things that I used to help remember. And then, of course, I had started the blog. So I had a lot of writing from the blog itself. And then there's a thing with trauma, too, that some details are just so vivid and so raw that I will never forget them. Right. And there are blank spaces that I may never, ever be able to recall. Right. So sometimes in the writing, I would name that there was a blank space here that I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I would, like I said, I mean, like I read the coroner's report again and the police report. And so I would dive into what I had. And those things do bring back a lot. Did, how about your children? Obviously, they have approved of being in your book. Yes. Were they involved? I mean, did in the writing part, did you talk with them or was it more like, plumbing memory or was that less so? It was some of all of it. We would talk about some things. You know, obviously our conversation about their father didn't end on the day that I told them that their father had died on the day he did die. Right. Uh, it's a conversation that continues, right? When they were little, we all three fit in one chair. We used little words, dead, daddy, sick, sad. And now they're 22 two and 24 and the conversation is more nuanced and in fact my youngest is graduating with a degree in psychology so oh. he teaches me things so sometimes he will reach out to me mom this is fascinating what do you think about this in relation to dad so the conversation continues yeah and you know we have bigger words now physiological depression yeah. um yeah these these continue to factor into the conversation as far as writing about the children, it's not a spoiler. I mentioned at the beginning that Sam was my first husband, which begs the question. I did remarry a man who had also been widowed and also has two children. So now together we have four children. Right. And whenever I wrote on the blog about the children, I would run it by them first yep. and make sure it was okay yeah. with them to write about it. And 
Uh, and I still do that. In fact, I had a tiny love story in the New York Times last week about my older two kids. I know. Congratulations. Really, yeah. And so not my biological children, but they are mine. And so again, I, I sent it to them first and said, is it okay yeah. if I write this? And they're adorable. They just said, oh yeah, they're, they're so proud of me. It's mm. really it's something wonderful. So that was important to me that the children and Tim, my now husband, all sort of had maybe not veto power totally, but I tried to write very consciously about them and to make sure that my writing is from my perspective. I, I don't try yes. to adopt what their perspective is because they have their own perspectives and memories. And right. But that is a no-fly zone for me. If the kids say, nope, absolutely not, then I'm like, okay, well, that will just not go into the world. Yeah, that's absolutely a testament because they allow you to share some really yes. very personal things too. And so that is... It's just all incredibly powerful and moving and the generosity that exists there is a huge example. You know, I I read memoir because I am looking for examples in the world of how to be that I might not have figured out for myself. And there is just through just unbelievable difficulty and devastation and loss, there is also unbelievable um, I want to say a meditation word, like mindfulness, awareness, like attention, not a shirking, not a looking away, not a soft pedaling, no euphemisms, but clear and right on it and uh, the willingness to come back again and again. Thank you so much, Michelle. Your words mean so much to me. I'm really grateful. Well, it is a reciprocity with that one. So I'm I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for that myself. So before we go, what was most daring about this book for you? I think it is what we've talked about the whole time is just saying suicide out loud and just being really honest about what it looks like and how painful it is and also how much we love Sam. Mm -hmm. And I think those are both important things for people to hear and to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can't thank you enough for, for your words. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation with, with you, Michelle. I feel like I could just hug you from West Coast to East Coast. I know. Big cross-country hug. Yes. Charlotte, Maya, I cannot thank you enough again for being here on Daring to Tell for Sushi Tuesdays. I will put information on the show notes for everyone to go check it out. I hope that they will pick it up and remember to speak. Michelle, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. It is hard for me to express just how much I love memoir. It is real people with real stories and this book is a beautiful example of how to hold painful, complicated, even opposing emotions at the same time. That is really such a mind-bending situation. And Charlotte's words have given me, and hopefully you too, an example of a path that's possible. 
It might be a very twisting path, up and down, brambles, much more nuanced than anything that is binary, as I was saying about myself, the yes, no, right, wrong set of options that we often feel like are our only choices when we are in some difficult situations. I just loved Charlotte's ritual of filling a bowl of water every day, and so I was thinking, maybe I should get a bowl. I could do that. I would fill it up. Uh, Let's see. Where would I put it? I'm not sure. I don't really have space by the sink. I have some meditation space in my office, but I'm not sure if that would work. And then I thought, oh gosh, if I put a bowl of water out, Rocky would probably knock it down or splash in it every day, which he often does in his water bowl. But further along her point, I thought, I don't think that a bowl of water makes sense for me, but what is my container? Oh, I know, it's my journal. That's the place where I practice pouring in the difficult, painful stuff and the victories and accomplishments and joys. It is another reason why I write. If you would like to hear from me once a month, in addition to this podcast, I send out a newsletter. It is called Hit Pause, which is Another reflection on the conversations that I have with the writers I talk with each month, you can sign up for it at my website, michellerado.com. I cannot recommend Charlotte's memoir, Sushi Tuesdays, enough. There is also a link for that in the show notes as well. And that vital suicide prevention lifeline number, 988. You can call or text it, 988. That's it. Very easy, just three numbers. Keep it in your mind to share or use if you need it. And the other thing that's always available to all of us, which is one of the most powerful gifts we can all give to each other, is, yes, you guessed it, daring to listen. If you have made it this far, I extend my thanks to you for staying with us all the way through. My musician husband, Phil Rado, will close us out today. I'll catch you next month. I imagine all the trees can see The sun will move and the moon will slide Into the place where we'll spend eternity